Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Bearspa, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Uh, this weekend, we are continuing the sermon series, Unshakable. The events of the last two years have impacted all of us. One way or the other, we all have been negatively affected by the pandemic. But in the midst of all the chaos and uncertainties that are surrounding us, God's people can be unshakable. And not because we are strong on our own or we are invincible, but we have a God who sustains us. As long as we are planted in Christ, we are strong. And we belong to a kingdom that is unshakable. The earthly kingdoms of this world will all fade away. But the kingdom of God is eternal and will endure forever. And we belong to that kingdom. So in this sermon series, we want to unpack some of the aspects of our spiritual life. We are called to be unshakable. The last time I spoke, we looked at the familiar story of David and Goliath, and I talked about unshakable confidence. When our confidence is firmly rooted in God, we will not be shaken. Today, I want to talk to you about unshakable convictions. What are those foundational beliefs that we can hold on to even in turbulent seasons of life? But the need of the hour is for Christians with convictions. The 18th century English preacher, George Whitfield was a man of convictions. It was evident in his preaching and in the way he lived his life. A story is told of a well-known philosopher and skeptic of his time, David Hume, who outrightly rejected the Christian faith. A friend once met him hurrying along a London street So he asked David Hume where he was going. Hume replied, I'm going to listen to George Whitfield. In astonishment, the friend asked, but you don't believe what Whitfield preaches, do you? No, I don't, said Hume, but Whitfield does, and I want to listen to what he has to say. There's something about listening to a person who is authentic, who has strong convictions, They believe what they say. It is magnetic, attractive, and such people are worth listening to even if you disagree with them. In a world where apathy and indifference have become the norm, people of conviction seem to be rare. Not too many people respectfully stand up for their beliefs. It is easy to succumb to the climate of our day and age and become indifferent to everything. Be passive, nonchalant. In contrast, Christians are called to a set of beliefs, convictions that we simply cannot compromise. They undergird our faith and provide us with that much-needed foundation. Without these convictions, Christianity is one generation away from extinction. It is these convictions that help us to be rooted when the ground around us is shaking. Christian convictions 
center on the unchanging character of God, the uniqueness of Jesus as the only way of salvation, the inspiration of the Bible and its relevance to all of life, the mission we have to bless the world around us. It is these convictions that motivate all the activities of the church. And you will see this throughout history. Compromise has never been an ally of the church. The church has always been at its best when its people stood up for their beliefs. Now, there is a character in the Bible who serves as a model for us in this area. His convictions not only helped him to be unshakable, but make a profound impact on the dark world that he lived in. And he serves as a model for us of how we ought to live in a godless society. His life is a, a template of how we can live an influential life in a world that is far from God. And he shows us not just to survive or just barely cling to our faith, but how to live a life of potent influence and be a, a reckoning force for God in the society today. The character I'm talking about is Daniel. The text for today is from the opening chapter of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And if you're physically able, I'll ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word from Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for refreshing examples in your word who serve as role models for us. We're grateful, Lord, for the lessons that we can learn from the life of Daniel, what it means to live our lives with conviction in a world that seems to constantly oppose your work. 
We ask today that you will encourage us, challenge us, convict us, and transform us so that our lives will be honoring to you. The way we live will impact our society. We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. We complain today that our world has gone haywire. The moral fabric of our nation is in disarray. What was once despised is now elevated and esteemed. What was once rare has become commonplace. Now, I saw a news item this past week that shed light on the peculiar challenges of our day and age. A grade seven student who has come out as transgender is upset that teachers use the wrong pronoun and is daily being misgendered by the school staff and students. Can things get any more complex than this? How can we uphold the teachings of the Bible in such a world? It feels like in the last two decades, hostility against Christian beliefs has been steadily rising. No follower of Christ will deny the fact that we are living in turbulent times. But hear me, as much as we grumble about our day and age, when we read the book of Daniel, what we have today pales in comparison to what Daniel experienced. And not for a moment did Daniel resign in hopelessness. From the beginning to the end, he maintains his unshakable convictions and in turn radically changed the world around him. Let me give you the context to the book of Daniel. Daniel lived in Jerusalem. It was the holy city the most sacred place with the illustrious temple where the glory of God descended. Jerusalem served as the symbol of Israel's beliefs, the center of all of its religious practices. Daniel came from a royal family. He had a great family heritage, high social standing, looked up to by everyone in the community, but Daniel had everything you could possibly ask for. He excelled in knowledge, high in IQ, pristine in health, handsome in appearance. This dude's got it all. And Daniel had an incredibly bright future ahead of him. But he would lose all of that, all of that in a moment. And he would be violently uprooted from the holy city of Jerusalem and taken to the city of Babylon. Now, if Jerusalem was the religious capital, called Babylon the capital of hell at that time. It stood as a, a symbolism for sin and human rebellion. Now, the book of Revelation calls uh, Babylon as the mother of all prostitutes, a figurative expression to communicate the sinfulness of the city. Now imagine relocating from Jerusalem and going to Babylon. It's like moving from the Vatican to Vegas. 
The Babylonian Empire, under its energetic ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, was expanding its influence. The great city of Jerusalem had no choice but to yield to the power of Babylon. So from a human point of view, Nebuchadnezzar is far superior in his power. There is no match in the whole world to this raging maniac. He is determined to conquer the entire world. By his sheer strength, he causes all of Judah to cave in without putting up a fight. And here comes the insult. As per the ancient Near Eastern customs, Nebuchadnezzar removes the articles from the temple of the God of Israel and takes these articles to the temple of his God in Babylonia. There is a, a theology behind this. When a nation bites the dust and surrenders to another, the God of the defeated nation has also been conquered. It showed the lack of power of the deity to protect its people. That is how it was perceived in a polytheistic culture. The conquering nation's God has proved his or her superiority. So with this in mind, get into Daniel's shoes for a moment. He's a teenager. Most scholars would say he was roughly 14 or 15 years old. And his world had fallen apart in no time. Daniel has been uprooted and taken to a foreign country, to a strange place with strange beliefs and customs to serve a brutal egomaniac king. And all of this is because, humanly speaking, Babylon is stronger in military power than Judah, and from the Babylonian perspective, their gods are more stronger than the God of Israel. Daniel witnesses the desecration of the holy temple, the place where he worshipped all his life. Can anything be more crushing to a teenager's faith than that? But not for a moment do you see Daniel in despair in this book. Not for a moment does he surrender to the hopelessness of the situation. But Daniel has this overwhelming, deep-rooted conviction that God was sovereign over everything. The sovereignty of God is central to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 opens with these words. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. Now, Daniel, who we believe is the author of this book, is quick to point out something that is so easy to miss. God delivered the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Now, all of this didn't happen when God was taking a siesta. Every one of these incidents happened under his watch. Nebuchadnezzar did not conquer because of his sheer military power or the strength of his Babylonian gods. It is precisely because a sovereign God allowed this incident for a purpose. 
You know, in times of crisis, there is no other reassuring doctrine in the Bible than the sovereignty of God. When we say God is sovereign, we are speaking of his absolute lordship over all of his creation. He overrides all powers and authorities. And that means there are no accidents in this world. God is in charge. He is in control. Nothing takes place without his permission. Our God rules and reigns over everything. Now, as much as we celebrate the sovereignty of God, you may be wondering, if God is sovereign and he rules over everything, do we even have any free will? We certainly have free will. We are not puppets. We make free choices. But our free will does not overrule God's sovereignty. God works behind the scenes, and he uses the free will of people to ultimately accomplish his agenda. See, a God who is less sovereign, who is not in control, who does not rule the whole earth, is not the God of the Bible. Knowing this, Daniel could view the horrific circumstances of his time through the lens of God's sovereignty. We can be so overcome by the events of our time that it is easy to lose grip on this key teaching of the Bible. Whenever things go out of hand, remember God is sovereign. The greatest Bible verse on God's sovereignty is found in the book of Daniel, and ironically, it comes from the mouth of the pagan king who thought he was in charge. It says in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is the God we worship. This is the God we serve. His dominion is eternal. Kingdoms and generations will all pass away, but God is forever seated on the throne. He's not surprised or taken aback by any of the events of our world. God is in control over people who think they are in control. That includes the governments and political powers of our time. The people who are the influencers of our society. God is sovereign over COVID-19 and this entire pandemic. All things are ultimately subject to him and nothing can thwart God's agenda. It is the sovereignty of God that assures us that God can take any adverse circumstance and he can turn it around for the glory of Jesus and for the good of his people. That is the God we serve. If we believe this with all of our heart, if this becomes the very core of our being, 
And we can be unshakable at all times. When the Babylonians conquered any nation, they adopted a brilliant strategy. They would leave the weak and the poor behind to fend for themselves, and they would target the cream of the crop. Those young with potential, talents, and abilities. And their goal was to reprogram these individuals so they can be part of the Babylonian kingdom. As a rapidly growing empire, they were in constant need of good leadership. So why kill, maim, or imprison talented people when they can actually serve your cause by being part of your team? All they needed was to be reconditioned. Therefore, Babylon targeted the young people of the nations that they conquered, those with intellectual abilities, physical strength, and now they will change them inside out to destroy their identity, to cut off any form of association or influence of the past and give them a totally new makeover. That was Babylon's agenda. And how did they do this? They did this by enrolling these young people in the University of Babylon for three years. Look at that text, verses 3 to 5. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Now, young Jewish men were not only in an environment that was hostile to their faith, but they were going to be indoctrinated. Their education would involve studying and extolling the Babylonian gods. They would master subjects like astrology, dark magic, and occult practices. This was the graduate school of Babylon for those who engaged in sorceries, who wanted to be expert magicians and enchanters. And these magicians didn't just perform some cool tricks. They were in touch with the spirit world and the demonic forces. Their job was to offer the king advice on crucial matters by bringing him insights from the other world. Talk about a faith-destroying curriculum. These young men who were recruited would be given new names as part of the reprogramming. Names are important to any individual even today, but in antiquity, they carried even more significance because of the meaning behind every name. I'm sure several Jewish young men were recruited for this cause, but the book of Daniel puts the spotlight on Daniel and his three friends. Daniel and his three friends had Jewish names that glorified God. 
but now they will be given new names that signified their allegiance to the gods of Babylon. Verses 6 and 7 of Daniel chapter 1, it reads, Among those who had chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Interestingly, the name Daniel means, God is my judge. And now the new name that's given to him means the divine lady protects the king. It's true of all the other three friends. Their names once signified their commitment to Yahweh, the God of Israel, but now their new names signify their allegiance to the Babylonian gods. Just to serve as a perpetual reminder that you are not a servant of Yahweh. Yahweh is defeated, and now you are servants of the Babylonian gods. Quite a strategy, isn't it? By all these practices, these young men will be so distanced from their upbringing, their culture, their religion, every value with which they were raised, and be fully conformed to the Babylonian worldview. This is all about assimilation, the process of osmosis by which gradual change happens over a period of time. So they taught them the Babylonian language, Babylonian religion, Babylonian customs, their manner of eating and drinking. So you do this to teenage boys for three years, guess what? At the end of the three years, they will undergo such a deep transformation that they will become Babylonian in the very core of their being. That was the plan. And I thought about Daniel and his three friends, what they had to go through. And I just shuddered. The onslaught that they faced against their faith. The opposition that they would have experienced on a daily basis. With no parental support, no religious traditions, no mentors to look up to, no godly influence in their life. Do they even stand a chance? What kind of convictions can overcome this type of a sustained assault against their faith? Verse 8 of our text provides the answer. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. The young men who were recruited were supposed to be fed from the king's table. This is royal food, the same food Nebuchadnezzar and his royal officials all enjoyed. Talk about whining and dining. The best, most exotic culinary in the whole world. These teenage boys had access to the same food that the king enjoyed. And we all know teenage boys love food a lot. Now, our three boys are not teenagers yet, but even now, half of the time, our fridge and pantry seems to be empty. Now, like any other young men, uh, Daniel's contemporaries would have gorged on this free food. 
The problem was, eating this food would compromise the dietary laws of the Old Testament that God had clearly prescribed in order for His people to be different from the rest of the world. But Daniel's contemporaries rationalized all of this. They didn't have any issues. They said, I'm not in Jerusalem. I'm 900 miles away in the land of Babylon. After all the setbacks that I've experienced, I finally have a chance at life. I've been handpicked to serve the Babylonian royalty, so let me make the best use of the opportunities that are coming up in my life. So they set aside the convictions with which they were raised and embraced the good life, the possibilities ahead of them. But not Daniel. The text says, Daniel resolved in his heart to remain true to God. Daniel didn't refuse the education. He didn't fight against the name change. He didn't refuse to serve the king. But Daniel knew at what point to draw the line. Daniel knew how to maintain that distinction so not to be squeezed into Babylon's mold. Though he lived in a pagan city, Daniel saw himself as a citizen of God's kingdom, a representative of heaven. And Daniel models a brilliant philosophy of how God's people ought to engage the culture around us. How do Christians live in an increasingly secular world when we seem to become more and more of a minority in a culture that is so far from God? How do we maintain our principles and biblical convictions in a world that seems to be hostile and oppose our beliefs? Three approaches are common when it comes to engaging the culture around us. The first one is accommodation. We live in an evil world, a corrupt world. There's not much we can do. So let's become like the world and just change our value system and be conformed to the world's value systems. If a culture of gossip is in your workplace, you join in. If excessive drinking and partying is common among your friends, you blend in with them. Our weekends are filled with all kinds of activities that keep us busy, so let's give up attending church services altogether. That is accommodation, becoming like the rest of the world around us. The second approach is isolation. This world is evil, and I want nothing to do with this world, so we will keep a safe distance and avoid all forms of contact so we don't get contaminated. So when the world around us celebrates Halloween, we will hide in our basement with our lights off because we don't want to meet the people at our door. We will keep a, a long distance from our Muslim neighbors and our atheistic co-workers just in case they rub something onto us. 
The idea is to isolate yourself so you can live in this little Christian bubble. The problem with both these approaches is both accommodation and isolation will not help us to be an effective witness in the world God has placed us. The third approach is the one modeled by Daniel. This is prayerful engagement. Prayerful engagement of the culture so we can live as God's ambassadors wherever he has placed us. We don't isolate ourselves from the world, and we don't blend in with the world either. Instead, we seek to be an influence for God, be God's agents of redemption. We partner with God in his mission and work of transformation. That is not just the way of Daniel. This is the way of Jesus. Jesus didn't redeem us so we can hide from the world, isolate ourselves from the world, forget the world, fear the world, hate the world, or even judge the world. Instead, Jesus has commissioned us on mission to love the world, bless the world, heal the world, serve the world, and above all, save the world. That is the mission of Jesus. So prayerful engagement of the culture around us helps us to be God's agents of transformation wherever we represent him. And I tell you, that requires wisdom, tact, and a whole lot of faith in God. The book of Daniel gives us the template of how we need to live in a world as representatives of God's kingdom. Now, I'll state this very carefully. My intention here is not to cause any offense, but merely offer a mirror for us to examine ourselves. Sometimes, I can say this from experience, some Christians with convictions can be the hardest people to be around. They stick out like a sore thumb. They are obnoxious in the way they express their beliefs. They want to merely prove a point, win an argument, stand up for their rights, and don't care about influencing the people God has placed right around them. See, Daniel was a man of convictions, incredible convictions, uncompromising convictions to the point all of Babylon's attempt to destroy his faith does not succeed. Daniel is able to hold on to that. But rather than being cocky or mean or rebellious about his convictions, Daniel is polite, gracious, wise, and prayerful in his interactions with those around him. He was living out his faith in the most godless environment you and I can possibly imagine, and yet his light shone so brightly. Now look at his proposition to the chief officials. This is the way of wisdom, a way to engage the world with the intent of bringing transformation. Verses 11 to 14 of Daniel 1. 
Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Uh, give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Do you see how respectful Daniel is? Strong in his convictions, but winsome when it comes to expressing it. He does this politely, with great humility, and a whole lot of trust in God. And what we see throughout the book of Daniel is God does his part in keeping Daniel and his friends safe and healthy, even on a meager diet. And what do we see at the end of three years? At the end of three years of training, Daniel and his three friends are brought before the king. And the king finds out that in every way, Daniel and his three friends were ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the entire kingdom of Babylon. And not only have these four men graduated with honors from Babylon's university, but they were the valedictorians of the class. They graduated with awards. Talk about being a lighthouse in the darkest setting. And I long for that to be true today that God will raise a generation of young people among us with the heart of Daniel and his three friends. Yes, we live in a secular world that is far from God and has strayed away, and the world is doing everything in its power to influence our kids, to reorient our kids and shape them to the image system of this world. 2,500 years later, the University of Babylon is still active and the strategies of Satan have not changed. It is to destroy our young people's identity in God and reorient them and refashion them so that they look more like the world and be conformed to the world's image. But in these challenging times, where are the Daniels of God? Where are the Shadrachs and Meshachs and Abednegos? Young people, listen to me. You don't have to cave in to the philosophy of this world. You can resolve to be different. It's time for you to draw a line and say, I am going to honor God with all aspects of my life. It is time for young women and men to rise and assume the place of influence that God has for you. I long for a generation of young people who will take such a bold stance for Jesus that they will take on all these imposing oppositions in grace and humility because of the rock-solid biblical convictions on which their life is built. What do we see in the book of Daniel? All through the book, God is actively 
at work. In the bleakest of situations and hopeless circumstances, God is at work giving favor, offering protection, accomplishing his purposes. Daniel, throughout his life, the entire duration of his life, remained as a powerful witness and representative of God's kingdom. It says in verse 21, Daniel chapter 1, verse 21, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. The writer of the book pushes the fast-forward button and talks about Cyrus. Who is this individual? He was the king of Persia. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the great Nebuchadnezzar, this conquering egomaniac king? He had passed away from the scene. What about the great Babylonian empire with all its pomp and glory? Where are they? No longer in power. The great Babylonian empire had been overthrown. Who is in power now? Persia is in power. Who is in charge of Persia? The Persian king Cyrus. Kings have come and gone. Kingdoms have collapsed. Power has shifted. New people are on the scene. Who is still around? The one who had rock-solid convictions. Daniel is unshakable. And he lived a long life. Over 70 years in Babylon, which means Daniel lived to be 85 or 90. And he didn't just survive or barely cling to his faith. He thrived. He flourished in all aspects of his life. He was a sought-after person, even by the kings. He made a difference. He changed the world around him. Daniel outlived his masters, holding on to his convictions and making a difference for his God. Now, all of this, all of this is because Daniel resolved at a young age not to follow the ways of Babylon, but to honor God with his convictions. That is a template for today. It all starts with a resolution to honor Jesus and follow in his ways, even if it means we have to live a countercultural life. I talked about three approaches to engaging culture. Let me ask you, which one resembles your approach? How? You're living your life. Have you blended in with the world to the point you lost your distinction? Or are you guilty of living in this little bubble? You've distanced yourself so far from your coworkers and neighbors and the people you go to school with that you're no longer an influence in their life. God wants you to be a person of convictions who follows Jesus without turning back. And that's how we can be God's agents of transformation in our society today. I'm going to invite our worship team to 
come now and lead us in a, a familiar chorus. They call this the baptismal song in many parts of the world. They sing this song in a baptism service to declare a person's commitment to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. And I want to give an opportunity for us to sing that song collectively, declare in this place of our resolve to follow Jesus. And I want to give a moment for us to respond to what you've heard give an opportunity for you to, some of you to recommit your life to Jesus. For some of you to take a bold stand and say, I make a resolution to honor Jesus in all areas of my life. 